this podcast may have explicit content. It also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Thursday, April 30th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Slate is dark. Yes, I know. The world is dark, a dark, dark place. But when Slate goes dark, it means something else. Due to all the work being done during coronavirus in unusual ways, often balancing family duties and Slate duties, management decided people needed to take a breath. Also a pay cut, but a breath to go along with the pay cut. So here is a day for Slate employees to contemplate their fortunes, or possibly book some extra gig as day laborers. I'm going with folding pizza boxes in a basement apartment in Seoul. But what it really means is this. If you check tomorrow, there will, in fact, be new articles on the website, slate.com. Those articles will not be written tomorrow. They will have been written beforehand. And in fact, The Gist is doing something similar. The Gist will have a brand new show in tomorrow's feed because there is the normal scope of human limitations and then there's the Herculean feat that we at The Gist perform each and every day. You know, you have to really present the latter logarithmically to truly understand. So today what I'm going to do is bring you two old interviews, both from 2014. That is right. I'll have been doing this six years next week. First up is a biologist and mathematical modeler, Nina Pfefferman. At the time, Professor Pfefferman, Dr. Pfefferman, was at Rutgers, now she's at Tennessee. And at the time, we were worried about Ebola, not COVID-19. But it's still very interesting, I thought, to hear the old interview and realize how familiar some of these what once felt like arcane terms were. So here is Nina Pfefferman from 2014, up next. R naught. It is a capital R with a subscript zero. It is a number, really a mathematical concept. It's going to tell us everything we need to know about Ebola, will R naught or not. The number's a little less simple than I've let on. Trust me, it's being calculated. It's being used by epidemiologists. It's a tool. It's not a solution, though. Joining me now to talk about R naught is Nina Pfefferman. She's the principal investigator of the Pfefferman Lab. Let me read what her research focus is. This is from the website, Mathematical and Computational Models of Biological Systems Related to Epidemiology, Evolutionary and Behavioral Ecology, and Conservation Biology. Hello, Nina. Hello, thank you for having me. So when it comes to Ebola, what sorts of things are you looking at before we even get to r naught? With Ebola, really what we're looking at right now is the behavioral aspect from my lab's perspective of what can we do to affect how people are careful around the virus, how people behave in terms of managing their own risk, and trying to predict what, that, what impact that will have on transmission if and when it gets to different places. Oh, and so where's the math come in with that? Ah, so math is everything with that. So the good news about epidemiology is that for infectious diseases, we're actually really good at using mathematical models to predict how many people will get sick, when will they get sick, where will they get sick, as long as we know the, the three big input questions. The three big inputs that we need in order to, to be able to make those predictions are, as you say, the r not of the disease. That's sort of the epidemiological properties of the disease. How is it passed? How often does one case spawn a new case? That's one big piece. 
The second big piece is the immunological and physiological profile of the population in which it's circulating. So how healthy are people already? Have they seen a related disease before which gives them partial or full immunity? Is there a vaccine available and have people taken it? Those kinds of questions. So that's the host profile. And then the last one is the behavioral profile of how do people behave? Uh, do they still touch each other? Do they still travel the same way? If we know those three big pieces, we actually have some really fantastic mathematics that can basically tell us with really good accuracy. And we've shown that over and over again with different outbreaks of different diseases in different places, uh, both historically validated and in predicting ongoing current outbreaks for the last 15, 20 years or so. Uh, we're really pretty good at figuring out where diseases will get when and how bad they'll be if we know those three things. They seem also interrelated. So you say the r naught, which is how they spread, but doesn't isn't that affected by the populations that a person will come into contact with? How can you say, oh, this is how many people uh, will be affected? What if the, that person is working in a nursing home and he comes into con- That's a contact with... That's question. Yeah, he comes mm-hmm. into contact with people with bad immunity, and what if he's, you know, a rural farmer who almost comes into contact with no one? That is a great question. So, so that is, in fact, a huge portion of the research, and it, it brings up a really good question about that value R-naught that we're, we're going to get to in a little bit, apparently. But there's a theoretical R-naught, which is simply a property of the disease itself, and it's assumed essentially to be in a vacuum so that we get to talk about it without worrying about those contact-based issues that are transmission and behaviorally based, which is simply essentially how infectious is the disease. You assume that the other two pieces go away. You assume there's no immunity, there's no treatment, there's no differences in health among a potential puddle of people. Mm-hmm. And then you inject one sick person and you assume that they mix all of the time with everybody. How many new cases is that likely to, to bring up? And that's actually why R not has the R as the name. It stands for the reproductive value. It's essentially the same as asking how many baby diseases does that disease get to have. Mm-hmm. So, and it's, so you could also think of it as replacement value. It's either reproductive or replacement, depending on if you come from biology or physics. Right. And if the replacement drops below one, the disease is going to die out. Is that right? Exactly. And it's exactly the same as thinking of it biologically. If, if every individual has less than one kid to replace themselves in the population, then it might be a slow decline but the population is going to, to go out extinct because there aren't enough to keep it going. Um, it, because humans reproduce sexually, usually we think of that as, as every pair has two kids, but really it boils down to what is the expected number of kids that each individual produces to replace themselves to keep the population going. So if that number goes below one, that means that each individual in the population will produce less than one person to replace themselves, that's not sustainable, which is why that r naught is a really good theoretical threshold, because if it's less than one, we know the disease is going to die out or become low-level endemic. If it's over one, then we know that each disease is having more than replacement value of itself babies. That means that the number of, of diseases in the disease population are growing. Ebola's is between one and two, so it's not a very virulent disease, right? Depending, again, on your definition of virulent, so the important thing to realize about are not is that the threshold is really the exponent in an exponential function. And, and what an exponential function means is that the rate of new cases of the disease is going to be proportional to the current number of diseases. So that means that a very small change in the exponent can mean a huge difference in the number very, very quickly as long as that number is over one. But measles has an R naught of like 18. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. Me- so measles is a much more transmissible disease. 
part of the reason that you don't hear epidemiologists freaking out about measles as much, although you're starting to hear us freak out about it more and more these days, is that it's vaccine preventable. Mm-hmm which means that the most people in the population, so this is that second chunk that I was talking about earlier, of what does the host population look like? Yeah. There's already a lot of immunity, which means that even though r naught is much bigger, that's that theoretical r naught where if you took a whole bunch of susceptible people and put one person with measles in there, we'd expect 18 new cases. But in the developing world, there's really nowhere you can go to find 18 people you could come in contact with to give them the disease. Got it. So, so what we do is we move over to something called effective R naught, which is no longer the, the theoretical R naught that says how transmissible is the disease, but now it says, okay, if you limit R naught by those two other pieces, the immunological profile of the disease and the behavioral patterns that govern transmission, how many cases is it likely to spawn then? And for measles in, in the U.S., for example, that's well under one because we've got such good vaccine coverage from the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. Um, now, we're starting to see outbreaks of measles again in the U.S. because people are, are rejecting the vaccine for their children. And this is the problem of uh, herd immunity. Yeah. Herd immunity is the idea that if the average person that an infected person sees is immune, then even if you're not immune, having gotten the, the vaccine or, or just being susceptible because you didn't get the vaccine... Um, there's no routes of transmission to you. No sick people will come in contact with you because on average, sick people will only see immune people. Then the disease will die out before it would get to you, the other susceptible person. Going back to a second for r not, is this calculated by looking at the disease in a Petri dish or is this calculated using real life and factoring all the other factors we've talked about? What a, oh, that's a fantastic question. Yeah, so it's definitely not a Petri dish calculation. In an ideal world, scientists would just be able to, to wave our hands and go, oh, the r not for this disease because we've seen it in a perfect setting where we controlled all of the other variables and then we just saw what it did. Then the theoretical r not is this number. But in practice, the only way to do that, it really would be to see it circulate among a crowd of susceptible people. And that's, if nothing else, a really unethical experiment. Mm-hmm. So we have some R-naughts that are experimentally determined by some really questionable human trials in the 1930s and 40s for things like the common cold or the flu or some gastrointestinal diseases right. where really scientists did get people to sign up for trials to say, come stand in a room and have someone sneeze on you. So by the way, once we're done wringing our hands about how, un- how unethical they were, d- did the information help us? <laughs> um, it helped a little bit. It didn't help in ways we couldn't figure out in other ways. Okay, good. Thank God. I didn't want the Joseph Mengele seal of approval with any of this. Right. No, no. So it it is the case that there are a lot of good shortcuts if we had no ethics to guide us, but Mm -hmm. they are only good until you start worrying about things like, oh God, that's a horrible thing to ever do to anybody. We should never do that. Express it however you wish, or if you don't wish, but you're an expert. Maybe give me the most likely way that Ebola will play out. Maybe you want to say there's a... X percent probability it will have almost no effect. There's an X percent probability it will have (laughs) some sort of contagion. Go ahead. So the the big thing to me that I don't know how to handicap the percent for how Ebola will play out globally is, does the world get its act together and really help in Africa now? And the depressing part of the answer to that so far has been, we've known that this is coming at least for four or five months, probably more like six or seven. 
I was having conversations with colleagues back in February or March going, oh, this one's going to be bad. That's a long time for the nations of the world to not get their act together and show up and help in a practical and meaningful way. So a lot of my intuition about what's going to happen over the next couple of years as this plays out globally depends a huge amount on whether or not we successfully intercede now in Africa. And it's already, I mean, the world is seeing, it's already too late to make sure this stays a within-Africa problem uniquely, but it's still a vast majority in Africa problem. And right now, the globally could make sure, essentially, that we, we really help out on, with regional control, and it doesn't become a widespread problem anywhere else this time. Nina Pfefferman, the principal investigator of the Pfefferman Lab. She's interested in, among other things, the effects of stress on population in fluctuating environments and how best to maintain human societal infrastructure in the face of pandemic disease. Thank you, Nina. Thank you. And now, and last... I'd like to revisit an interview from September 2014 about the power of analogies. Because analogies have become so important during the pandemic. Are we in a war-type setting? That would instruct us to perform a certain set of actions and think a certain way. Or should we shelter in place? That reminds us of a hurricane. Hurricanes pass soon. Then you dig out. Is the analogy to the flu, which is usual, or Vietnam, which is certainly not? Analogies aren't just useful tools for communication they to some extent rewire the brain, which actually isn't science, it's more of an analogy. Here, John Pollock, author of Shortcut, How Analogies Reveal Connections, Spark Innovation, and Sell Our Greatest Ideas. An effective speaker can turn a phrase like Ozzie Smith could turn a double play, or like 18th century ballet dancer Fraulein Heinen could turn a pirouette, like an army could turn a boy into a man, or like Cleopatra could turn man Mark Anthony into mush. And there you have the tool of the great speaker, the analogy. It's a tool as versatile as the monkey wrench and as reliable as a ball-peen hammer. And here, to unlock its secrets, like a waitress in a deli will unlocks a vegetarian's bagel, is expert analogizer John Pollock. The book is called Shortcuts. John Pollock's also the author of The Pun Also Rises and Cork Boat. He wrote and made a boat made of cork, which actually got you the job in the Clinton White House, right? Almost eliminated you, but got you the job. Well, it helped. It helped. And there was an analogy behind that. There was, actually. I was uh, being interviewed for the job, uh, talking with the chief speechwriter, and he was looking at my resume, and he said, I, I have no, no doubt that you can write. I've looked at your writing samples, but but what's this cork boat? And I had added it on my resume the night before because I, I actually was currently unemployed. I needed to account for what I was doing. And I, I said I was currently building the world's first cork boat. And he asked me to, to tell him about it. And I said I'd been saving corks, wine corks from the age of six, and I was going to build a big ship and take it on an epic voyage. And I could tell that he was a little bit dubious. Who was this whack job? Maybe I shouldn't uh, come to the White House. And I said, and suddenly this analogy popped into mind, and I said, well, building a cork boat is a lot like writing a good speech. And he kind of looked at me, and I knew I was in deep. And I said, well, uh, you take a lot of words or a lot of corks. If they're in a jumble, they do nothing for you. If you put them in just the right order, they'll take you on an amazing journey. And he started to grin. At least I had the gift of the silver shovel. And he said, okay, I get the analogy, and I got the job. And if he had a big mustache and a cigar, he'd say, son, you're hired. <laughs>
Just like that. Now, I'm thinking a cork boat's like the economy itself. It's hard to point in the exact right direction, but generally it's above water. You might need a bucket to bail it out once in a while. And it goes generally in the right direction over time. All right. There's your cork boat analogy. Now, I love analogies. People sometimes ask me when I was a reporter for NPR, I don't like sports, but I like you. Can you account for this? Like, I'd give a complicated answer, but you know what it kind of boil down to? I made good analogies. Like, I know that most of the audience didn't like sports, so I could analogize it to something else, and then they'd get it. Or the audience that did like sports, like, if you read 20 game pieces about how the Giants did, no one would come up with my particular analogy. So it was a little fresh and exciting for everyone. That's it. That's my theory. You've really hit on something here because people understand through analogy. When you go to school, you learn through analogy. When you are listening to someone's point of view, you can listen, 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 and then suddenly they spring an analogy on you and you say, oh yeah, I yeah. get it. But they could be clarifying, but they, they could also be horribly misleading. What people don't realize is that the analogies we choose can sometimes have huge consequences. Yep. Uh, take, for example, uh, the, the domino theory uh, that led us into Vietnam. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower offered that off the cuff in a press conference when a reporter in 1954 uh, said, you know, what's the significance of French Indochina? Why should we care? And he said, well, it's it's like a row of dominoes. You set them up, you tip one over, the next one goes, the next one goes, and sure enough, the last one's going to tip over. I mean, if we lose Vietnam, there goes Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, Malaysia, and they're knocking at our door. That analogy took something that was very abstract and far away and put it into terms that the public could understand. And over successive presidencies, we got deeply involved in Vietnam at the cost of thousands of lives and, and, and billions of dollars. And the analogy was wrong, and we know that because we lost, right. helicoptered off the roof in Saigon, and the other countries didn't topple because they're not dominoes. They have their own history, leaders, politics, geography, etc. Right. There are others that sometimes people don't even realize how much of an analogy they are. And I think one of the most destructive things in thinking about policy is how we think about the national economy and we analogize it to our family economy. And it becomes very attractive to say, hey, I have to balance my budget. Of course, the national economy needs to be balanced. But they're really two different things. And I don't even think that people realize that that's an analogy as opposed to an equation. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and, and there are some very obvious differences. The United States of America has been in debt every year, except for one since its founding. During the Jackson administration, yes, I think. Uh, that, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> and the needs of a country are perpetual and grand. You, one constantly needs to be uh, investing in the future. And, and, and we do that uh, through, through debt. And so that's very different, whether you're building an interstate highway system, whether you are making the Louisiana Purchase, putting a man on the moon, uh, the sentiment, and this is what analogies do very effectively, is they swap in uh, an easier question that people can understand for a harder question. Yes. And, and, and getting two people or one person in a household to balance, to agree on priorities and, and balance their budget is a very different challenge than getting 535 people to, uh, with representing different interests to agree uh, on what those priorities should be. So uh, the analogy only goes so far, and it, and it actually is, is quite limiting. One of the analogies you talk about is um, we always use sailing analogies, mm -hmm. sailing the ship of state. But early on in the book, you talk about this Viagra ad, yeah. which is a great analogy. Um, describe, great, and it's, it was, describe what's in the ad. Uh, okay, so uh, in that ad, uh, it starts out, and there's this 
confident, middle-aged, good-looking man uh, sailing a, a, a boat, and, and the camera zooms in, and you see this critical piece of hardware fail on the boom, and, and uh, the, the main sheet slips out, and, and the, the sail starts to flap loosely. As the narrator calmly talks on, uh, the, you see the, the captain of the ship pull the belt from the life jacket and make a fix, and suddenly the sail is firm again, and he sails onward. And it's the perfect analogy because you, he never, they never mention the problem explicitly. They just get at it obliquely. It boils down to something very un- elemental in sex. Is hard better than soft? Do you want to be in command or do you want to be a victim uh, of mm-hmm. the winds? And so... When you take your belt off, is it for a purpose? Yeah, well, yeah. he takes his belt yes. off with confidence. Yes. Uh, he's, he's in control. Uh, there's, there's nothing that, uh, that he can't uh, control. Yes. And as a sailor, would, did this make sense to you? Was his uh, fix logical? It was. I, I haven't experienced the, the other problems uh, to which he was alluding. Yes. Uh, but the sailing analogy, it was, I suppose, it, it, it did its job. I think the analogy of the year this year is, is the Mideast crisis the Iraq War redux? Is it the Vietnam War redux? Or is it a pre- Neville Chamberlain pre-World War II situation or pre-9-11. What's your analogy that will dictate all your philosophy, strategy, and tactics in dealing with ISIS? President Obama uh, initially made the comparison to a JV team, and and that got him in trouble. Uh, in, In the speech to the nation two weeks ago, he talked about ISIS as a cancer. And that was a much better analogy because how do you tackle cancer? Uh, you have to be steady. You have to be aggressive. You're going to have two steps forward, one step back. That's something that people can understand. Now, the next day, General Hayden, former CIA director, said, well, a bombing campaign is, has all the appeal of instant uh, of casual sex, instant gratification, but no commitment. And that was a terrible analogy uh, <laughs> because... Ideally, in casual sex, you know, you've got two consenting adults, and and I can guarantee you, however much somebody on the ground in northern Iraq might deserve the attack, yeah. they're not consenting to be being yeah. bombed. And if you're trying to build a, a coalition to fight this cancer, probably didn't help the cause by, you know, hoping to enlist you know a, a lot of Muslim countries in 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 this casual sex. Right. It's such a mixed analogy. The only way to fight this cancer is through casual sex. And I also have to tell you, the last time I was trying to seduce a woman, my talk of surgical strikes and my guarantee of no ground troops did not help matters at all. Did not go anywhere. I was. Th- you were think. You were talking about that can- would be uh, booty on the ground. Huh? Guy, guy won a punning competition. John Pollock, who wrote The Pun Also Rises, is now the author of Shortcut, How Analogies Reveal Connections, Spark Innovations, and Sell Our Greatest Ideas. Thank you, John. And that is it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the GIST associate producer. When it comes to this day off, she's champing at the bit, like Mike Tyson was biting at the champ. Daniel Schrader is the GIST producer. He fears the darkness like a pile of dried leaves fears the sparkness. The gist, trying to combat a virus with an R0 of four is in fact all for naught. That's wise, right? That counts as wise, right? Remember, whole new show tomorrow, but we'll be relaxing and listening to it. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.